Well, good morning. Good morning. You and 830 both did a great job and good Good mornings. We are going to be in Romans chapter 1 today, and I would like all of you to have a Bible. So if you don't have one electronically or hard copy in front of you, raise your hands, and one of the ushers will get you a Bible. My name is Tyler Johnson, and I am the lead pastor of Redemption Church. Now, you may think that's odd in that you're sitting in Redemption Church, and Tim Mon is the lead pastor. That's true. Tim's the lead pastor of Redemption Gilbert, but Redemption Church is a multi-congregational church. We have six congregations, four of which are, we would say, established, two are in church planting phase, and each one of those has a lead pastor and elders, and then I am kind of the leader of the leaders, if you will. This is my home congregation. Redemption Gilbert is my home uh, congregation, and it's where I was reared and raised in ministry in, in a very real sense is the only church I've ever been a part of. And so I know many of you, uh, but if a lot of you are, are new in the midst of the last couple years, I may not know you as well. So it's a delight to be with you this morning. Uh, we are going to look at the topic of homosexuality today, and uh, it is a very culturally relevant topic, like Jeremy said, and because of that, and because at times it seems uh, confusing with all the different voices on it, we want to be very clear and provide you guys resources that may help in your conversation. The first one is a thick book uh, that's actually very expensive because it's print on demand. It's called The Bible and Homosexual Practice, um, The Biblical Text and Hermeneutics, which is just a word for biblical interpretation by Robert Gagnon. He's at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, has views different than us on a lot of issues, uh, but he very much on this issue goes uh, straight to the Bible and puts forth a view that, that we would affirm in regards to this issue. So if you're one of those people that go, I really want to get hard into the text, want to do some academic work um, in the missus, this book's for you. It is expensive, but it's in the bookstore. There's a uh, few copies in there, um, but that. The next two are much easier to read, and they're memoirs of sorts that bring forth biblical teaching as well. Wesley Hill wrote a book called Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness in Homosexuality, a self-declared uh, man that has homosexual orientation, um, but because he's a Christian, has worked his way through of what it looks like to be uh, faithful to God's word and yet deal with these. Um, very good book. And then the last one is the one that, that the guys in the preaching collective uh, that have been reading have said is one of the most convicting books they've ever read in their lives. It's titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor journey into the Christian faith by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield, um, amazing story. She was a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse, uh, declared herself a homosexual at 28, began to live that life, was in a 10-year committed relationship, two homes with a partner, was sponsoring five gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender groups on Syracuse's campus. Uh, when she was writing against Christian ministries, um, specifically, feeling like they were very oppressive, was getting uh, fan mail and hate mail. And in the midst of one letter came that was fairly neutral from a pastor of a church in Syracuse, New York, that she began to strike up a relationship with. And this is her story of through that pastor and his questions encountering Christ. It is an unbelievable book that you'll hear more about lately. So I want to put those in front of you um, because two weeks 
uh, that we are going to be in the midst of this topic are not nearly enough to deal with all of the complexities of it. But we are going to be in this two weeks. We're in the book of Romans. Uh, specifically, we're going to look today at the theology of homosexuality and next week a Christian attitude towards it. So this really is one message that's too long for one message. So we split it into two parts and I'll be back with you next week. So if you would stand with me as I read this passage that by standing we make uh, a clear declaration that we sit under the word of God. Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is God's word. Take a seat. Let's pray. God, we um, come before you and acknowledge the complexity of this issue. God, I do not want to be, nor does Redemption Church, want to be simplistic. And yet, God, where your truth is simple and straightforward, uh, let us be simple and straightforward and clear. God, let us model Jesus who was full of grace and truth. God, I pray that in these moments, um, you might shepherd us well, pastor us well by leading us into truth. Give us through your Holy Spirit ears to hear and eyes to see the great things that you tell us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there could be a very real question of why we are speaking as directly as we are to this issue and taking two weeks to do it, when in reality this is a few verses in the book of Romans. Let me tell you some of the reasons that we are. The first thing is, is that we want to be biblical, and Redemption Church teaches through books of the Bible. There are many people um, right now, and this isn't all wrong, that would make statements about highly controversial issues because of how complex they are and say, we won't speak about those things publicly, but we'll speak about them privately, which there are legitimate reasons that I understand they're doing for that. But you can do that when you aren't teaching through books of the Bible. If we were to come before you right now and just skip over this section or never mention homosexuality, in integrity, you might look at us and say, that's lacking. That's lacking integrity. It's right there. Speak to the issue. And we want to be authentic. Because we're teaching through a book of a Bible, we're teaching it because it's presenting itself to us. The other issue, and the reason we're taking two weeks, is because it's contextual. It's the context in which we live People are talking openly about homosexuality and homosexual marriage, and we want to speak into that. We believe that this is not just true for Christians, but that the Bible presents itself as the truth for the whole world. It's public truth, if you will. And so the Bible speaks to real-life issues, and we want to speak to that. And that leads to another issue. We talk about pastoring our people unto life. And if we aren't equip, equipping and preparing 
our people in what the scriptures say and in turn how to live those out, we do not believe that we're faithfully doing our job. So there's a biblical reason, a contextual reason, a pastoral reason, and then a reason that has everything to do with the calling of the church, which is discipleship. The Apostle Paul at the beginning of the book of Romans says that the reason he has the ministry he does is because the Lord Jesus himself gave him grace and apostleship, and then he says the reason, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. That means amongst all the peoples. Because God is the creator of all peoples, he calls his creation to live with him, to live in his ways for his glory and for their good. So we want to be biblical, contextual, pastoral, and we want to speak about discipleship. I was um, not long ago watching the television or had come across a Piers Morgan show that was, I think, on the computer at the time. And this was right before um, the Pope was installed. And Piers Morgan was meeting with Penn Jillette, who's a famous kind of magician, funny kind of comic magician who's also a very outspoken atheist and in the midst of this conversation Piers Morgan who's a self-professed Catholic says to Penn Jillette this atheist what he thinks the next pope needs to be and essentially he says the pope needs to change with the times the pope needs to pro be progressive and he he lists a series of issues that you can imagine he would list and Penn Jillette the atheist looks across from him and he said Piers you want a pope who's not Catholic To which Piers Morgan said, this is really odd and interesting in being confronted by an atheist. And, and Pendulette goes, I don't understand why people want to so change the foundation of what these religions are and then still claim the name of it. Like Catholics have historic beliefs. They have a text, the Bible, that they are to believe. And this atheist is going, be true to what you believe. Don't ask for a movement away from that. We find ourselves in the very same place, even as a Christian Protestant church, of looking and saying we are Christians in the sense in, in following in these traditions where we sit under the word of God. The reason today I had you stand is to communicate a reality that God's word is God's word. And we're called to sit under that word believing God knows best because God is the creator. And at the same time, we don't want to be simplistic. I feel a burden today to be deeply pastoral. And what that means is that I'm not standing on the stage representing the leadership of Redemption Church, just trying to make a point. If all I wanted to do is make a point, I could read the passage, make a couple statements, and be done in five minutes. Now, I know a lot of you would love that, but we're not doing that. The desire of this is not just to stand up here to make a point, but it's to make a difference. And in order to make a difference and truly be loving to a culture that may believe things that are very contrary to what we believe, we need patience, we need persistence, we need to follow in the way of Jesus who was full of grace and full of truth. We need to understand the complexities that sin brings into the world. So we don't stand here, nor did Jesus himself just stand up and try to make a point. Jesus isn't just here and he didn't come into the world and he doesn't give us the scriptures to go, I'm here to merely inspire you. Or I'm here to just make a point and draw a line in the sand. He came for transformation. And so we're here working our way 
through that. Now, there's challenges in speaking to this issue, and I want to acknowledge a couple of them up front before we get directly into this passage. The first one that's, that's big is the challenge of different constituencies, different people. We're not homogenous. Today, I'll speak to thousands of people, literally over 2,000 people will sit in these seats that you're sitting in today. And this group is not monolithic. Even if you said, today I'm speaking about homosexuality, you've got to go, if I'm speaking to homosexuals, what does that even mean? Because inside homosexuality, there's a lot of difference. It's like saying, all white people like hamburgers, right? You go, all white people? That's a pretty gross generalization. Like, how do you speak for all white people? Well, it's the same thing with homosexuals. There is a variance that if you're in this room and you've had temptations towards homosexuality or you feel oriented that way or you outright would say, I'm gay, there's a variance in that, right? There's same-sex attraction that there's a spectrum on of somebody that says, hey, one time in my life I was attracted to somebody of the same sex. I never acted upon it. I never did anything. That's one level. And then there's more attraction. Then there's same-sex orientation, a person that would go, I've never been attracted to anything but the same sex. Never. That's an orientation. But then there's gay identity, people that just outright live it and say, I am gay. Those aren't all the same things. And then if you move out of homosexuality entirely, there are families in here that are deeply affected by this through a child of theirs or through an uncle or an aunt. And then almost everybody in here would have friends that are directly affected by this. And we need to speak as well as we can to those different constituencies. But I know this even being trained in education. One of the challenges with presenting something consistently is the problem of prior knowledge. That it doesn't just have to do with content, but it also has to do with the environment each person is coming from. So just for instance, let me speak about a couple of those. If we're sitting here communicating as Redemption Church and we're communicating to people in the pews or even outside of it, as we as Christians are speaking to cultural elites who despise us, who despise Christianity, we want to be bold and we want to be courageous. We don't want to be pushed in a corner because we believe this is public truth. These I, I got from a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He says, also, if we're speaking to strugglers who are fighting against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. You see the difference? If people are fighting against us, we want to be bold and courageous, not push back. But if we're speaking to strugglers, we want to be patient and sympathetic. If we're speaking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church because the church has mistreated homosexuals and people who are struggling through this issue, if we're speaking to sufferers, we want to be apologetic to them, and we want to be humble. We haven't exemplified the grace that Christ would call us to be and exemplify. If we're speaking to shaky Christians, of which there are many, shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval or for, to deal with their feelings, we want to be persuasive with them, and we want to be persistent with them. If we're speaking to what we would consider liberal Christians who are who are giving up and compromising on the faith that was once delivered for all the saints, as Jude says, we want to urge them strongly and to be very serious. If we're speaking to gays and lesbians who live as though the scriptures would not have them live, we want to be winsome and straightforward. And then if we're speaking to belligerent Christians who hate and fear homosexuals, we will be upset and we will be disappointed. That isn't the way of Christ, to be hateful or fearful. 
Let me tell you another challenge with this is we have a challenge of public opinion. The polls are changing on this very clearly. Rick Warren just recently sent out a tweet, which I'm not even going to explain what it is, but it's social media. Rick Warren just recently sent out a tweet and he said this, I'm pretty sure God has never taken in an opinion poll to decide what's morally right or wrong in his universe. Now, that could sound very simplistic. I don't want it to. I just want to say God's God. Okay, but there is a challenge that public opinion matters and shapes us deeply. Culture shapes us deeply. And this presents this challenge of what feels right. There's a challenge of what feels right. Now, when we talk about feeling here, listen to me very closely. We're not saying that what you feel isn't real. Okay, I'm not saying what you feel isn't real. I can't say, is this a real feeling or not? What we're saying is, is it right? Is what you feel right? Because not everything we feel as human beings is in the trajectory of that which is accurate or right. Now, we may have a whole conversation, and many of you skin might be crawling that I even said right. But we believe in a God who created a world to function in a way that it would flourish. And there are ways that lead to flourishing, and there's ways that lead to the opposite and to destruction. Culture is very, very powerful, even unnoticeably powerful. It's in many ways, you begin to learn things about life like you learn a language. If somebody asked me right now, how did you learn English? Right? How would you answer that question? Unless you came from another country and you did Rosetta Stone, you'd go, I have no idea. I was just in the midst of it and I learned it. Culture has the same impact. And it impacts you to the level that now you have feelings, and your feelings, your desires drive that which you believe is right and wrong. Unless you have a standard of truth, of righteousness, of the way things are ordered beyond yourself that Christians claim is the scriptures. This is how Paul can say that people claim to be wise and in fact are foolish, this is why Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, don't be pushed into the mold of the world. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind according to God's truth. Here's the last challenge that I want to speak to is the challenge of polarization and wrong misleading definitions. Here's what I mean, polarization. That's all I have to say, right? Lines are split. There's this side of the aisle and there's that side of the aisle. That's what the world's trying to do to us. I would say as Christians, we need to consistently move past those polarizations, in love enter into conversations, but be willing to uphold truth in the midst of this. And this has to do with wrong definitions. Rick Warren again um, said this recently. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. That's a lie. If you disagree with someone's lifestyle, it doesn't mean you fear them or that you hate them. It just means you disagree. The second lie is that to love someone means you agree with everything that they believe or do. He says both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Let me say that last line. You do not have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. There's a movie 
that was um, decades ago called the Stepford Wives. It was a modern rendition of it. And the idea of the Stepford Wives was that there was a group of men who were going, our wives are kind of a pain. You know, it'd be much better if they just do whatever we told them to do. That if they would just come up and do that which we told them to do, it would be way easier, way better. So in the first movie, they turn them into, they get robots to be their wives. In the second movie, they put chips in their wives' heads. And then their wives turn out to just basically say, honey, I'm here for you. What do you want? And whatever they want, their wives do. Now, by the end of the movie, what you see is the challenge of that is these men no longer have wives. They have robots. And you can't have a relationship with a robot Now, church, here's a huge challenge that many of us, beyond this issue of homosexuality, many of us, hopefully not most of us, create for ourselves Stepford gods. We put a chip in and we go, my God would never. My God, I can't believe in a God who. Well, if you create a God in your own making, you can't have a relationship with that God. And if you don't have a God who can't contradict your cultural sensibilities, you don't have a God. And you don't have one, in turn, who you can actually have a relationship with. Let's move now um, into the scripture specifically and deal with the context of this. I want to start off with this offensive truth for this series, um, this next two weeks, and today being a theology of homosexuality. I'll begin with this offensive truth. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior. The scriptures don't because Jesus doesn't. The Old Testament prohibits male homosexual intercourse in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And Paul assumes that as a good Jew and now as a Christian, as Jesus communicates the Old Testament over and over, Paul does as well. He assumes this prohibition in Romans chapter 1 that will be in, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in the New Testament, authors even of Jude speak of it as well. Yet, in terms of the entirety of the scriptures, homosexuality is a very minor theme. It's mentioned only about six times in all of the scripture. So this begs a question, well, then why are you talking about it twice? To which we said to you, because the culture is speaking about it so loudly and we want to meet people where they live to speak about this. But Paul's issue isn't to exalt homosexuality. This is in the entirety of a whole argument that isn't about homosexuality. It's about sin and how we might be rescued from sin. Homosexuality is used as an example, and yet you develop theology Through clear teachings of scripture and the way the scriptures as entirety speak of things, you can form a theology, which is what we'll do today directly from this passage. But let me tell you this, because this isn't a major theme, and because in the end it isn't even the major point that Paul's making, be very, very careful and be on your guard to not set up something that you don't struggle with as the primary sin while neglecting yours. Because the scriptures speak much louder, more often, about greed, about consumerism, about failure to care for the poor, about heterosexual lust that in our context would take place through pornography and many other means. Paul doesn't allow us to get off the hook. Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 are setting up the fact that we're all guilty. The irreligious are guilty. In chapter 1, the religious are guilty. In chapter 2, all are guilty in chapter 3. And this is why it leads to Romans 2.1 at the end of Romans chapter 1 argument. And he says, who are you to judge? 
He's not saying you can't establish that which is right and wrong, but he's going, you who judge do the very same things. We are under the indictment of God. Peter Jones says this, it is not Paul's goal to make homosexuals feel guilty. It is goal to make everyone feel guilty. So let's get into this in Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at this. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because of from where it stems, because of what it shows, because of what springs from it, and because of what it says. Because of from where it stems, what it shows, what it's what springs from it, and what it says. First, Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because of from where it stems. Throughout Romans chapter 1, Paul displays that our sin comes from the fact that we are alienated from God. If you read the beginning of the Bible, God is the one who created all things good and all things in harmony. Humanity was in harmony. Man was in harmony with God. Man was in harmony with himself. Man was in harmony with other human beings and in harmony with the rest of the world that God created. When sin enters the world, you see very clearly all of that harmony turn into alienation. We hide from God, we're alienated from God, then we're alienated from ourselves, and we're now on a quest to find ourselves and have our identities figured out. We're alienated from each other, we begin to blame each other and treat each other wrong because it becomes all about us rather than this other's orientation that God made the world to function. And then we're alienated from the entirety of the world. It's like a broken down power line. When a power line breaks down, it moves all over the place because of the power that's within it. It is very similar to human beings. There's a power in it where that power line is trying to find its root, its source. Human beings were made for God. Colossians 1 is very clear about this, that all things were created by Christ and for Christ. We were made by God and for God. And yet, our sin, Romans 1 says, we're looking everywhere trying to find our connected source and doing crazy, foolish, ridiculous things, sinful things, because we're fundamentally alienated from God. When I was in middle school, I'd come home and I would make myself food. And at times, more than once, there were massive kitchen blunders when my mother wasn't home and I was by myself trying to cook food, milkshake mistakes. And, but there was one day, my uncle was over at the house and I determined I'm really craving macaroni and there was the box macaroni. And so I wanted to cook myself some macaroni and cheese. So I took out the box and I knew that you had to boil water and then put the stuff in. So I began to boil water and then I took the noodles and I poured them into the boiling water. Only then to hear my uncle, after some series of minutes, go, what in the world are you doing? To which I looked, and there were little macaroni noodles shooting across the kitchen. Reason being that I boiled the water in a teapot. Because I knew a teapot boils water, and then I poured the macaroni in the teapot, and when it heated up enough, it began to shoot the macaroni across the kitchen. Now he's sitting there looking at me going, you don't make macaroni in a teapot. It was made for something other than that. Yes, to boil water, but not to make noodles. That's what God's saying to you. He's saying to humanity, listen to me. I made you. 
And I know what I made you for. And sin has entered into the picture, divorced us from one another, and now everything is haywire. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 makes this so clear. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because it stems from alienation from God, which leads to lust. This word, right? Very, very clearly there. Therefore, by the lusts of their hearts, this word lust means an over-desire or a violent desire. It means that we, as sinful people, are looking at created things and beginning to not view them as the creation to be enjoyed, but that which establishes our identity, that we got to have. We over-desire them. God has created many things in this world good, to be delighted in, to be enjoyed, but not to be worshipped. There's an over-desire to it. Another definition of it is a violent desire, a desire that is destructive, because it's distorted, that communicates and promises something that it will never deliver. And living out of that, that over-desire or violent desire leads to impurity. Living in ways that aren't due the creation and how God made it. We do crazy things and we think they're wise and God says, no, they're actually foolish. We do things thinking that they'll bring life and in fact they bring death. We walk in ways that we think are the way when actually it's the wrong direction. We go in places thinking that's what's going to fully satisfy me and in the end it brings destruction, impurity, and shame. And this is all because, he says, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's a truth exchange. This is what many times we don't realize when we think about sin. We just think, oh yeah, everybody makes mistakes. But we don't understand that behind the sin, there are powers. A power specifically that the Bible says he is there. The enemy is there. And he's out to seek, to kill, and to destroy. And his language is a language of lies. And it's lies that are covered in shiny stuff, good stuff, like candy-coated trash that you put in your mouth and for a moment it tastes kind of good and it reaps destruction. And yet there's another one, Jesus, who says, I'm here to give you life and give it to the full. But because of this truth exchange, the believing of lies that at many times many of us feel like are so real and so truth, and this lie leads to the worshiping and serving of the creation rather than the creator. Worshiping and serving the creation. Not just over-desiring it, but that we begin to lay down our lives. What is worship but loving it with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What is strength but your body? That we begin to worship our feelings, our emotional feelings. We begin to worship our physical feelings, created stuff. God made us emotionally feeling creatures. He made us physically feeling creatures. He knows that stuff you think is good. He knows it's good. He's looking at you going, I'm the one who first said it's good. But I didn't make it to be worshipped. And he says things like, you will become that which you worship. What you worship, you become like 
And it literally says we worship and serve. That word serve is fulfilling religious duties to created stuff. So what does that mean for all of us? It begs a huge question of what is it that you're desiring? Desiring deep down. Are you desiring in the deepest parts of your heart created things or the creator? Gifts or are you desiring the giver? Do you want the coin or do you want the bank? What is it that we're desiring? And because we're like that broken down power line, we're constantly searching its source and the desires God has put within us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, inside every human being, God has placed eternity. This realization that you were made by something deep in you, you may not even recognize it, you may suppress it like Paul said, but deep inside of everybody, our quests are in fact quests for God. It's that broken down power line going, where's my source? Where do I find my identity? How do I bring harmony to the world? Where might I find comprehensive, holistic, if you will, salvation? This is why G.K. Chesterton has this very famous quote where he says, every person who walks and knocks on the door of a brothel, it's a prostitution house, is actually looking for God. Here's the other thing, beware of your heart. The wisdom author in the book of Proverbs says, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow the wellsprings of life. The ideas in which you begin to comprehend, the things that you put into your eyes will begin to shape your heart. And he's saying, guard your heart. You want life? Out of your heart come the wellsprings of life. Guard your heart with all diligence. And then live, we need to live what we believe. Recognizing, are we believing a lie or believing truth? Here's the next one. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because of what it shows. This really is the heart of Paul's argument. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because of what it shows visibly. What it shows. The way God designed males and females displays the way he intended human sexuality to function. The biblical authors prioritize the revelation of God's will at creation, the way God made things to function. And the way God designed males and females displays the way he intended human sexuality to function. Think about it this way. If a Martian came to earth, walked into this room, and on the stage you put a naked male and a naked female, the Martian would say, that works. Visibly, biologically, watching. This is Paul's argument. If you put on the stage a male and a male, the Martian would say, this does not work. Now let me pause here for a moment and say, Sin complicates things dramatically. People feel things deeply. People understand this. And they may listen to an argument like that and go, that is ridiculously simplistic. But let me submit to you that when you're a Christian, there's an other side of simple. Christians, in the way of Jesus, don't promote simplicity. Remember, we're not just here to make a point. But in fact, life is at many times simple. The reality, what's hard is the living out of those simple truths. Paul's argument here is an argument from God's world. 
In the history of the church, there's been these two ideas of the authority rests in God's word fundamentally, but we see truth very much through God's world. These are inspired scriptures given by God, right? It's special revelation. It's God's word. And yet Paul's argument is an argument about God's world. This is in this section when you start in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged, listen to how, how often this word is used, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So a basic of Bible study is anytime a word is used over and over and over, that's a huge part of that section of the argument that this author is making. And Paul is making an argument that there's obvious complementarity between male and female genitalia. There is obvious complementarity between male and female genitalia. The word he uses for male and female is very specific. It speaks of the male as the piercer and the woman as the pierced. This is the argument very clearly, is that there's a complementary biological relationship in the way God ordered humanity to function. Now, this is very much, if you're sitting on stage here, which I have done little of wrapping up chords in my life. This isn't kind of my, my MO, but there are, are parts that they will call the male and the female part, right? And the female part is the receiving part, and the male is the part that enters into the reception. That is the argument of Paul that we even see in the midst of our world. Now, the reality is there are many people right now trying to make biblical arguments against that this is Paul's real argument. And they'll argue even at the beginning of Genesis when it says he, he made them male and female, that that isn't a biological argument, but it's an argument about companionship. The male needed a companion. And they're trying to really do away with the biological reality. And then they'll come here and say, actually, Paul's argument is much more about gross distortions like men with little boys or crazy prostitution. And, and actually, sincerely, that is, is true. That was happening in this context, in Greek context and in Roman context. So they do historical study, and that's really, really there. But in the end, even when you get through and wade through all of that, which I think the Bible is still very clear, you still come up against the fact that if a Martian were to come to earth and you put a naked male and a naked female here, like God made this a certain way that just is plain. And I'm not trying to be crass, and I'm not trying to just shove someone in the way and say you're stupid. But that's Paul's argument. The reality of his argument. When God's world says something so obvious that we have to work really hard to conclude something different, almost always you're going to sit and say, this is the way God designed it. So we need to take heed of God's world and obey God's word. Next, Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because of what springs from it. Now, you need to listen really close to this. Jesus, over and over and over again, speaks about life. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. And I don't care who you are in the midst of this room. If you have the option of life or death, right? And, and I'm not even speaking of when your bodily fi body finally goes to rest. I mean, in this life, 
Do you want to experience living that feels like living or living that feels like death? You want to experience living that feels like living. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And therefore, Jesus hates everything that brings about destruction, everything that brings about distortion that would lead to destruction, things that bring about death. Jesus hates them. Now, hear me very, very clearly. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Okay, stop for a minute and listen to that. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. There's a great quote that speaks about the man who truly loves hates in his son the alcoholic, the liar, the drug addict, He hates that because he loves his son. Jesus Christ is so passionate about the flourishing of your lives, of the creation that he made, that he hates that which distorts it and leads to destruction and death. He doesn't approve of homosexual behavior because what springs forth from homosexual behavior, the scriptures say, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When I was um, this time probably about nine, I went to a restaurant with my parents. And you know kids between like five and ten, they love things that are red, especially food. Like if it's red, they want it. So in the center of this table, there was a bottle of red stuff. And I wanted it, right? This bottle of red stuff that I, I wanted. And my dad said, actually, that red stuff's not sweet like ketchup. That red stuff's hot like peppers. It's called Tabasco sauce. And I thought, it is kind of a different red, but it's red. I want it. Dad, I want it. My dad said, no, it's pepper sauce. You don't just put in your mouth hot pepper sauce. But dad, I want it, right? And I'm thinking, it's red. No, you cannot have it. And I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would my father be forsaking me to have something that's that good, right? And every time he says no, I think he's saying, I hate your guts, I don't want you to experience good things. So I'm like, I want it, I want it, I want it. Now, I know many of the women in the room are like, where was your mother? (laughs) She was on the opposite side. And so because my father was by me, my father said, fine, you foolish idiot, (laughs) right? Drink it, right? If you want it, take it. So I take the lid off, and I literally go like this. (laughs) And then I'm like, ma! And then my mom's like, good Lord what's happening? Right? Mark, why did you let him do this? He asked me like six times. She's going, you don't give him Tabasco sauce to drink. He was driving me nuts. Now, hear me on this. In this passage, God says, it says he gave them up. He gave them up to their desires. God, the wrath of God is being revealed by God going, you want it? Go. And at that moment, right, this is what it felt like. It felt like a bomb went off in my body when I drunk, drank the Tabasco sauce. My dad tried to prevent it. The scriptures say, God gives us that which we want. And let me tell you, if you continue to drink Tabasco sauce, you'll get sores in your mouth. You'll get burns in your throat. Your gut will go in knots. It'll twist all over the place. The loving thing at that moment is not to go, eh, I don't care. But in that moment, for God to say, no, I'm deeply passionate about your life. This is where one pastor says, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. 
When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. So let's talk about love for a minute because this is a huge topic in this conversation. We need to love each other and care about each other. And people will write articles, you know, about 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful. And they'll sit there and they'll look at the church when the church takes a stand on this issue for what the Bible says and says, why don't you apply the love chapter to which I would say we need to. And the love chapter indicts us many times where we need to apologize for not acting in the ways of Jesus. But on the same hand, communicate the entirety of the love chapter because it also says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in truth. The way of Jesus is he's full of grace and he's full of truth. We need to communicate about love. I think it's an incredible platform to begin to have this conversation of what really is the most loving thing and remind you of Rick Warren's word. Because I say I disagree with your lifestyle doesn't mean I don't love you. In fact, it may mean I love you all the more. Maybe the scriptures would say, I would argue the scriptures would say, and I love you even better. Here's the amazing part about God gives us up to what we want, is then that's not the only thing God gives up. You want to talk about love, the one who loved the world more than anybody else, the one that's more committed to our joy and our delight than we even are, the one that really in the essence cares is the one that so loved the world that he saw the distortion of sin and the destruction that it was leading to, that he gave up his one and only son, that whosoever believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That's sacrifice of all sacrifice. Greater love is no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And there all are alternatives. You may be sitting in this room with a family member. You may be a person that struggles with this. And what does that in the end mean? It means this. Jesus is very clear. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Which doesn't mean it will be easy. But it means he's saying to you, come to me. I have a place for you at the table. But come to me. Trust me. And then he upholds things and gives power to do it. He upholds the sanctity of marriage and parenting with celibacy. He says that there are eunuchs, people who won't live out their sexuality, and there are eunuchs for the kingdom, for the sake of obedience to God. Now, it's really possible, and it's happening all over, that many people are hardening themselves to their truth and rejecting this call of following Jesus. But it doesn't have to be like that. In the midst of your complexity, God can bring about sanity. We'll end with this. Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior because of what it says. Jesus is Savior, but his saving nature comes from his Lordship. The book of Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And acting out on homosexual desires says to God, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily care about how you made the world. I don't necessarily care about what you say. And in fact, says, you're not Lord. I don't trust you and I won't obey you. I'm the father of four kids. 
And um, as you raise your children, there are these moments where you, you got to remind yourself often, like kids will be kids. Like don't freak out, kids will be kids. But then there are these moments where you've said something like 545,000 times and they still do it, like jumping on the bed. It's like there's only so many times you can sing, no more monkeys jumping on the bed, right? Like you just, it, it just gets to a point where it's, it's overdone. So the other day, my, my boys are doing something, they're jumping on a couch or whatever. And, and I took one of them in and I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Why are you doing that? Unbelievably reasoning. He said, because I want to. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's really theologically accurate. We do what we want to do. Okay, do you not remember the 545, 232 times your mother and father have told you not to do that? Oh, no, I remember that. Okay, so you don't care? I want to. Okay, well, at some point there, it goes from kids will be kids to this thing called obedience, right? This thing where you look at your child and go, you're just unwilling to, and that's disrespectful. This word shameless that's in this passage literally means dishonoring or disrespecting, that you are disrespecting God who made you like this, and in the end, you're disrespecting because you don't at your core trust him. You don't believe he's good. You think there's no way you understand the complexities of this God. Or you ask real questions, then why did you make me like this? Are you sufficient? And the question at that moment that you have to really get to the heart of is, is he sufficient and are you willing to follow? And let me submit to you this church. Here's the question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, he's declaring and has established his lordship, which means he's worthy to follow, which means he's the ultimate one who's against death and for our good. If he is Lord, we submit to him not as a just get out of hell free card, but the obedience of the faith among the nations that we stand there and we go, if I have now come to Christ... I not only say, Jesus, I'm standing upon your grace and your grace alone, and he goes, that's the only thing that can rescue you. You cannot rescue yourself, but at the same time, I'm calling you to discipleship, to live as though I am Lord, and I will give you a showering, a flooding of my love, and a flooding of my Holy Spirit to empower you. But the question is, is he Lord? Is he Lord? Richard Hayes says this about homosexuality. He, Richard Hayes notes from Paul's argument in Romans. Richard Hayes is a biblical scholar. He says, when human beings engage in homosexual activity, they enact an outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual reality, the rejection of the creator's design. The rejection of the creator's design, these are my words now, is the rejection of the creator's word. The rejection of the creator's word is a rejection of worshiping the creator through worshiping creation. I told you about this um, woman, Rosaria Butterfield. Let me just remind you uh, again what I said to you before. At 28 years old, Rosaria Butterfield um, outright claimed uh, that she was gay and began to live that lifestyle and defend it. She would say that she was absolutely passionate for the disempowered. She was passionate about righteousness and justice. She wrote articles about morality. She wrote against the things that she thought were immoral, which were churches like this, communicating truths like this. At 36 years old, she becomes tenured faculty at Syracuse, leads five gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgendered um, groups on campus specifically. She's in a 10-year 
lesbian relationship, is living with this uh, other woman, has two homes with this woman, when uh, a pastor begins to write her a letter and engage her in questions she would say she's never encountered before. At that moment, she encounters Jesus. Now, I'm going to read to you that which this woman said. Okay, and let me be really clear. This woman is not one foot in the church and one foot out of the church. She's out entirely. She thinks this is ridiculous, this is absurd, and she encounters Christ. And she speaks as a real person about this issue and the complexities of it that we're going to end with and then we'll pick up next week. She says this, Christ claimed me for himself. And the life that I had known and loved came to a humiliating end. Now listen to this, Christ claimed me for himself and the life that I had known and loved came to a humiliating end. She says, this word, this word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. She says, you just say, oh, be converted. She goes, that word is too tame, that word is too refined to communicate the train wreck that I experienced when I came face to face with the living God. Sounds like Isaiah 6. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter. Now listen, she's an amazing writer. Listen to the language. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter. Impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash in the body count. Picture that image. She's going, impact is the space between the car crash and the body count. Although grateful, I did not perceive conversion to be a blessing. Although grateful, I did not perceive conversion to be a blessing. It was a train wreck. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. When Christ gave me the strength to follow him, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian. Hear that. When Christ gave me the strength to follow him, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian. I've discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey him. That is a word for everybody in here. I have discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey him. At this time, though... Obeying in faith to me felt like throwing myself off a cliff. Faith that endures is heroic. It's not sentimental. Faith that endures is heroic. It's not sentimental. I couldn't believe how exhausting it was to daily put Christ before me. The old patterns were there waiting for me. And they knew my name. The old patterns knew my name. She says, but I'm grateful that when I heard the Lord's call on my life and I wanted to hedge my bets, keep my girlfriend and add a little bit of God to my life, that I had a pastor and I had friends in the Lord who asked nothing less of me than that I die to myself. Now, church, let me tell you something that speaks way beyond homosexuality. There are issues in your life right now that everything inside your gut, everything that feels says, this is the way I should go. In the way of Christ feels like a train wreck. I'll lose everything. I'll lose the way I feel, my emotional feelings, 
This might be in a heterosexual marriage. This might be in a decision at business that you're sitting there going, I'll lose the way I feel emotionally, the way I feel physically, the way I feel all of this. And in the end, you're going, if I go that way, it is a train wreck. And yet she says over and over and over again that when you experience the living God, he will contradict your cultural sensibilities, but he will give you the strength. And that he gives you that strength. Hear me on this. If you're sitting here wondering how, he gives you that strength through his word and through his people to continue to go, no, this is the way. We will stand behind you and God will show himself faithful. I have found, she says, that my feelings only change when I begin to obey him. So if we sit back and go, but I don't feel it, but I don't feel it, but I don't feel it. God's saying, cross the line. What does cross the line mean? It means trust him. Trust that he is good. Do you believe that he rose from the dead and he's the one who says, I have come to give you life and give it to the full? Cross the line, trust him and obey him. And he will shower you, flood you in his love and with the power of his Holy Spirit, amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, we fully acknowledge that these issues are complex. We admit to you that uh, many of us, regardless of this issue or not, are, are deceived. God, we confess to you hatred and fear when there should be love. We confess to you um, our confusion. We confess to you that we've worshiped created things rather than the creator and that we're all indicted. God, we pray that through your love and through your Holy Spirit, through your love displayed by Christ on the cross, God, that you would show us the way of life. God, we love you and praise you. We ask uh, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit right now in Christ's name, amen.